All right. So we've been in this book of Acts. And if you're new here, you're not sure why we're in this book of Acts already for like seven or eight weeks, we like to go through books of the Bible. And the reason we do that is just so me and Vince don't preach our favorite topics over and over and over again. And so we're going through this book of Acts, and it's been pretty exciting for us. I I can kind of feel the excitement. I can kind of tell from talking to you guys, like, man, this is real. I love this book. I just love this book. And and so, and I love it too, because we get to see probably more than any other book in the Bible, a group that is so similar to us, right? It starts off with Jesus talking to his disciples and giving kind of these marching orders of, hey, my spirit is going to come and empower you, and you're going to go to the ends of the earth be my witnesses. And then we get to see them start to do that. And that's kind of us, right, too. Like, we don't have Jesus physically here with us, but we are empowered by his spirit to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so, I'm, I'm excited to get into Acts today because I think we're really going to get a unique picture in today's passage about who the church is and how they represent Christ well this week. So earlier this week, I was uh, at Target because I like Target. And uh, most people do that are from suburban areas. And I was walking around Target and there was this one couple that I, like, we were in a lot of the similar areas of Target, and they were a new couple, and I knew they were a new couple because of how the guy was talking to the girl, and it's, it's this thing I call the cool guy voice, because when couples are new in the relationship, some girls laugh because they go, I heard the cool guy voice, I know what you're talking about, and the cool guy voice is this thing where guys will, they kind of, it's kind of like a mixture between Keanu Reeves and Batman, okay, <laughs> and they just talk in this way to sound cooler, and it's not their real voice, and they just say weird things. Like, I, I, I think I overheard him say something like, yeah, you know, like, uh, this, my doctor really recommends this toothpaste. And I'm, it's like, your doctor? Or like, I know a dentist is a doctor, but like, really? do you call him a doctor? And, and I just can't keep hearing him just say, like, yeah, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm really strong. And... You know, I think Christians especially are bad at this. Like, Christian guys, they go on the, they don't even ask girls on real dates. They're just like, can we hang out in the same place and see what happens? And, and they use the cool guy voice, and they just, it's just so ridiculous. They'll just be like, yeah, yeah, you know, like, real tired. Just been waking up 7 a.m., spending time with the Lord every day. Like, you know, <laughs> just me. Just me, a cool guy. Um, you know, yeah, or like, yeah, like, oh, like, oh, we're, oh, you took a trip to Texas? I've been to Africa. Yeah, I've been there, seen the people. I learned more about myself than about the people there. Like, just like all these, there's this like cool guy phase, and I, and I hate it because there's just something in me that just wants to start fighting that person. And, and I probably did it too, but uh, I've been married long enough that I forget. And so there's this cool guy voice that happens, and I think the church, bear with me, has been kind of in this cool guy voice phase so far, okay? And here's what I mean is you don't really get to know this guy until your first fight. So when you're dating a guy and he's just in that cool, cool guy voice phase, he's just presenting what he thinks is the best version of himself. But when you get into a fight with him for the first time or he loses the voice eventually, you begin to see what his true character is. 
you get to see what his real heart is. And so today with the church, we're going to see actually like the first kind of big conflict of the church. Yes, I know God struck dead two people a few weeks ago in Acts, but this is the first big conflict in that there's bigger groups involved. It seems like the whole assembly of Christians are kind of involved here. And so as we've been seeing the church grow and grow, it started off kind of just these Jewish people that became Christian because of how they witnessed Jesus. But then we even say, saw on the day of Pentecost, these people began to believe of all different types of languages. And so we're, we're beginning to see a church that's more and more diverse. And today we're going to see the church have its first fight. And how it has its first fight, the, the things that the church does, is going to give us characteristics of the church. We're going to see the church's character. And I think that those characteristics, I would love to apply to us today as well. And so we're going to look at the text and then talk about some of those characteristics. So if you need a Bible, actually raise your hand. We like to hand these Bibles out so you know I'm just not making up my own translation, that this is a real translation of the Bible. Raise your hands high, and someone will pass them out. One of our best interns right here, Vince. Um, and he, well, let's be honest, he's okay. And so... Uh, and so, uh, and let's just hop into it. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It says this, Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, let's stop there. I'll kind of give you the setup. So we've been seeing the church grow. And they're growing, and they're all kinds of people. And we've seen two different times now, basically, that the people of God, in some way, are sharing their resources. They're, they're almost pulling their resources together, and they're giving to those that have need. Right? And so we're seeing that happen. And one of the ways that they did this was they cared for the widows. Because back then, to be a widow was even worse than today, because a widow could not provide for herself because they had a mostly male-dominated workplace, especially in Palestine. And so they were caring for these widows that no one else was caring for, these widows that could not provide for themselves, that were probably older, whose husbands had died. And so they are caring for these widows. And in the, in the church right now, there's a few different groups, but there's two bigger groups, one being the Jewish Christians that were kind of like Peter and the disciples and these guys, and then there's the Hellenists, and I had to look it up because I was like, am I cussing right now? I'm not sure. And so the Hellenists, they're these group of Christians, and they're Jewish Christians as well. So that means they were Jewish, and then they became Christian, but they're Greek-speaking Jews. And so that means that they probably lived outside of Israel, and that they somehow came to this Jewish faith, and then became Christians. And so this group comes to the church and says, hey, our widows, our Greek-speaking widows, are not being cared for. And Luke, who wrote Acts, he's kind of silent on what that is, on why the Hellenist widows were not being cared for. Now, it could have just been a language barrier, right? It could have been that the Aramaic-speaking Jewish Christians just had a hard time communicating with the Greek-speaking uh, Christians, or it could have been more sinister than that. It could have been that they didn't like that 
group because of ethnic and racial tensions. That's possible too. It could have been all sorts of things. So we don't know exactly what was going on, but there was some sort of conflict, and the Hellenists bring this to the group and say, hey, this is happening. Will you help us? And so we see how they solve it in verse 2. Read with me. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will point to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen. Oh, we'll pause there. And so, we'll stop there. And so, the, they come to the disciples, the 12. So the apostles are those 12 disciples. The 11 of them hung with Jesus. Actually, all of them hung with Jesus, but 11 of them, of them were chosen by Jesus and another earlier in Acts that we saw. And they say, okay, this is a problem. Let's solve it. And it kind of sounds a little bit messed up. Like, they, it is not for us to serve tables, right? Like, that's not, like if Vince is like, it is not for me to hand out Bibles. I'd be like... Dude, that's why I made fun of you, called you intern. And so, but that's not what they're saying. They had a bigger view of work, and we're actually going to talk more about this later. But they saw all work as having dignity. So when they're saying that, they're not saying, hey, we are too awesome for this. They're simply saying, hey, because of our current responsibilities, we can't also take on this responsibility. And so that's what they say. And so they say, hey, appoint seven guys, appoint these seven guys to go, men of good repute, men that are full of wisdom and full of the spirit, which means that they were just, these guys were just so connected to God that all the time that they were walking by the spirit, that in almost every moment of their day, it would be as if Jesus was among them because of the spirit living through them. And so they say, pick seven people and have them begin to do this task. And so we see what happens in verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands upon them. So let me answer your first question. Is this Timon of the Lion King? <laughs> the answer is yes. I looked at the Greek. It said, in the Greek, it means Timon of Pumbaa. All right, so I don't know. I had to do some deep searching after that. And so that was a joke, just in case. Someone's like, Anthony, <laughs> uh, that wasn't right. Um, so they pick these seven guys. The people like how the apostles handle the situation. They go, hey, I like that. Like, we'll pick these seven guys. And these guys all have these kind of Greek-sounding names, so they were probably even Hellenists themselves. And they pick these guys, and they live it out, and the apostles lay hands on them to commission them for this work to serve the widows. Okay? And so that's kind of our story in a nutshell. There was a problem. The apostles said, okay, let's solve it. And he kind of put it in the hands of the people to solve it. They solved it. And they commissioned them. And so that's our story today. And I think in this story, as small as it is, I think there's so much of who the people of God is in this moment. I think there's, there's at least 
I picked five characteristics that I see of the people of God in this moment that I wish, not just for our body, but for me. Like, I wish that I could live these things out well. And so we're going to spend the next part of the sermon just talking about these five characteristics that I see in the early church and how they dealt with this conflict. Okay? Um, I'm going to take a quick drink, and then we'll hop in it. All right, so... The first characteristic is this, is that they did not quench the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Okay, they did not quench the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And here's what that means. Basically, there's this idea in Thessalonians, and it says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. It's in 1 Thessalonians 5. And this idea is basically saying, do not extinguish, that's what quench means, what the Holy Spirit is speaking. Do not extinguish what the Holy Spirit is doing. Do not extinguish the Holy Spirit. And I think they went, they went a step further. They said, we're not even going to quench what he convicts us of. Because in John, it says that the Holy Spirit will actually convict the world of its sins. And so one of the things the Holy Spirit is going around, I think, to everybody and going, hey, that's wrong. Hey, that's sin. Hey, you shouldn't do that. And so I think that the early church, when that happened, they didn't go, no, 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 no. They went, okay, where can I correct? Where can I get better? Because I think too often I myself find myself going, when someone comes to me and says, hey, you made this mistake, I find myself going, but did, didn't you actually make that mistake? Or I'll go, but, well, I made the mistake only because I, I you know, this was going on or whatever, I, you know. And, but the early church... They didn't really have any excuses. They just said, okay, let's deal with it. We've made a mistake. And we don't know the, the depths of the mistake or if there was sin involved or if it was just a mistake. But they were quick to hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I think too often, I find in myself and I find in our church that we're not quick to hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Our, our churches in America celebrate and I, I celebrate them too, these stories of people that had to hit rock bottom before they could find faith in Christ. And I think that's good. We need to celebrate that. But I think sometimes the danger in that is that if our story doesn't look like that, we think we can't hear God's conviction for us yet. That we have to be in this, what we perceive, very messy place before we can see our own sinfulness and messiness. And all the time, I feel like I hear these conversations of people in our church that mentor well, and what begins to happen is they say, man, here's some issues, Anthony, that I think that essentially my mentee, the, this person I'm discipling is just quenching the spirit. I think one of them is just dysfunctional relationships. Like all the time, I think we get in dysfunctional relationships with people, particularly if you're a Christian, with a non-Christian person where you're just like, I'm just going to keep doing this. I think it's right. Where everyone around them is like, no, don't do it. Here's some scripture to help back that up. All these things. And they're like, no, nah, I'm still, I'm going to keep doing this. I see it in how we allocate our time in our day. I'm trying to talk to people all the time about my, like, honestly, like, the only time I am, like, really relying on God is when I'm spending time with him daily. When I'm sitting before him and praying and looking at his word and going, God, help, see, help me see how much I need you. And I feel like all the time I have these conversations in our church 
where people are like, I just don't have time for that. I just haven't made time for that. And I worry that you're quenching the spirit who's saying, hey, you got to make time for that. I'm not saying, hey, make time. you got to read the Bible in a year or whatever. I read a chapter of the Bible a day, so I'm not a good Christian. (laughs) I'm just saying that I think we don't make intentional time to spend with the God of the universe who saved us. And I hope we're not quenching the spirit. I hope. I think the final way that I see so much in our church of us quenching the spirit is when it comes to how we objectify each other as people, how we look at each other as objects. And particularly, I think this is a man and a woman struggle, but it's predominantly men, pornography. I can't tell you how many conversations I have with guys where they're just like, yeah, it's not that bad. It's not bad for me. It's okay. Or they might feel really guilty about it, but in that moment when they're about to look at the pornography, they still do. And I just wonder if the spirit is being quenched. And I don't know. But I know that the early church was not quenching the spirit in this moment. I know that in my life in college, there was a, a, a particular sin that I had been struggling with, and I began to quench the spirit. The spirit had begun to speak to me and say, hey, Anthony, this is how you have to get out of that. Hey, Anthony, this is how you have to stop this. Hey, Anthony, repent, turn to me, come back. And I didn't. And I just got to this place where I was really lost and even confused to my faith and questioning my salvation. And I began to do these evil things where I began to say, you know what, actually, when I sin, it helps me know God more because I can understand his grace, which is such a perversion of the gospel. And so I don't want us to be a church that quenches the spirit. And corporately as a group, I don't want us to be a group that quenches the spirit. I I, I want us to be able to say, if someone says, hey, I think you guys as a group are making this mistake, I would love if we were a church that said, yeah, maybe we are. Maybe we need to change some things. So that's the first characteristic I see, that they were not a group that quenched the spirit. I think the next characteristic I saw in this passage was that, and I want this for us, especially for myself personally, is that individualism did not rule the community. Okay, individualism did not rule the community. This idea of individualism is that the individual matters more than the group. That's kind of how our country runs a bit, okay, if we're going to be honest. And so I think that often all the commercials we watch, all the laws we make, all these kinds of things say that the individual matters more than a group. And it gets a step further to where you're like, well, listen, I just want to be me. I'm going to do me. And I'm going to let people do you. And that's that. And I don't want their actions to affect me. And my actions won't affect them. And then that's good enough. To the point to where we go, no, I really don't want their actions to affect me. I don't want that to happen. And we get into this individualism that just consumes our way of life. We're so unwilling to disadvantage ourselves for the community. Here's, here's a verse I like. It's uh, Philippians 2.3. It says this, Count others as more significant than yourself. Count others as more significant of yourself. So the church, they were, the early church, they did not have indiv- individualism, but they didn't have collectivism either. That says, hey, the group matters than the individual. They had something entirely different where they go, no, hey, count others as more significant than yourself. And I'm so convicted by this because I am such an individualistic pain in the neck sometimes, especially for my wife. Right? Like when we first got married, I noticed this, this cute little habit she has 
where she takes my drink at restaurants and begins to drink it. <laughs> and I, it bothered me so much. Like, there would be arguments about it, right? And I would just not be willing. And listen, like, you know, I get she's stealing from the restaurant, but we're not going to talk about that. And... <laughs> I, I would just go to these great lengths, like I would be like measuring her arm out and then putting the drink like two inches farther. Or I'd be like, the good one is like you get a napkin holder and you can kind of like camouflage it behind the napkin holder. She's like, oh, where is it? And so um, you get into some spillage possibilities with that one though. And so I'm just this individualistic person that's always looking to serve myself and that's a problem. And we cannot let individualism rule the church. We need to count others as more significant than ourselves. That's what ruled the church. That's what ruled the church. And that's why this conflict was solved so quickly. Could you imagine if we began to, if we began to live this way in just the body of believers? Could you imagine if we began to live this way in our families and in our friendships and in our romantic relationships and with our husbands and our wives? Could you imagine how different it would look? What if just the 150 of us or whatever just went out into the city and began to live this way? How different would Flagstaff look if we were a group that said, we're going to count others as more significant than ourselves? There's no caveat on the, on the few places where that says that in the Bible. It doesn't go, count others as more significant than yourselves unless, it doesn't say that. It just says, count everybody as more significant than yourself. And I think when we begin to do that, we'll begin to, as a church, look at these things and say, hey, this is something we need to change about ourselves. This is something we really have to change about ourselves. And I think our cities will look completely different because of it. And so begin to look at your heart and your mind and say, man, is, am I individualistic? Do I hide my soda in my wife? Do I go to these great measures? I wish that wasn't a true story, but it is. All right, another characteristic, the third characteristic that I saw in the early church that I hope for us is that the people of God really believed that Jesus was bigger and stronger and more powerful than anyone's sin. They really believed that. They really believed that Jesus had defeated death. And for them, defeating death meant that death was a consequence of sin. And that's for me too. Death is a consequence of sin. And so Jesus defeated that because he's not only was he the only person that never sinned, but when he died and was killed, he came back to life because sin could not hold him down because he was sinless. He defeated death and sin on the cross and with his very life resurrecting. And the people there believed that. Some of them had seen it. Others had witnessed it through the power of the Spirit in other people's lives. And so they really believed that Jesus was bigger than any sin or mistake of someone else. And I fear that in our churches that's not true. I tried to imagine what would happen if this happened in the church today. If Hellenists came to us and was like, hey, you're not serving our widows, I'd be like, I didn't even know you were serving widows. But <laughs> I think that what would happen is sometimes the Hellenists would go, hey, listen, we're going to, this is happening, we're leaving. We're starting Hellenist church 
of the Nazarene or whatever it is. I'm not trying to put that kind of church on blast. I don't even know what that is. And so I just want to make that clear. Um, but I think that often that we let these little minor mistakes or these sin issues of other people convince us, I don't need to go to that church anymore. I don't need to be part of the body of believers. I think that's what I see more often. It's not just switching churches, but that people go, you know what? I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to be by myself, me and Jesus. And that's it. And that's dangerous because the whole Bible, especially the New Testament, seems to be written to a group of Christians. It's almost always written to a group of people. And we reflect God when we do community well. And so I think if we have a bigger vision for just how powerful Jesus is over sin and death, we will have a better vision for our own lives, what it means when someone sins against us or makes a mistake. I think it would cause us to stick together. The church is messy. When you have a group of people that go, hey, you're really sinful and you need Jesus, and they're all like, yeah, I'm really sinful and I need Jesus, and then they all start hanging out, it's going to be bad. Like, it's just going to be messy, and there's going to be conflict, and there's going to be problems because they've got a bunch of people who are admittedly sinners, and God is having them be a work in progress. But I think too often we go, no, that's too messy. I'm out of here. That person's too messy. I'm out of here. And hear me, there are good reasons to leave a church, but there are not good reasons to just completely leave the body of Christ. And I, but I, what I worry about is I think that more often than not, we leave for not very good reasons. We leave for silly reasons because we have a small picture of Jesus. We go, hey, he, he didn't really die for that person's mistake or sin, just mine. And I think that's a problem. And so we can't let other people's sin and mistakes be bigger than Jesus. We have to live in his victory over it. All right, there's, so there's two more characteristics of the early church. So stay with me. <clears throat> so the fourth characteristic of the early church is this that I saw. Is that the leaders in the church are called to equip people for ministry. Okay, the leaders in the church are called to equip people for ministry. Okay, so when we saw uh, the disciples say, Oh, it is not right for us to serve tables. It sounds really bad to us, right? But something else they understood was God was calling them to be equippers. Does that mean none of them ever did ministry? No, they, they do ministry all the time. Does that mean church leaders don't do ministry? They do ministry all the time. And ministry is just basically doing God's work, bringing God's kingdom into focus, bringing God's kingdom to earth through the power of the Spirit. But the leaders of the church and leaders of our church are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Let me read this verse from Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. It says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of, the, of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so this idea heavily affects how we do things here. We want, as leaders, Vince, me, Randy, Andy, other leaders in the church, we want not only to build up the church, but we want to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. 
So our church is called as a body of believers to do the work of the ministry. And sometimes this is a little bit of a problem. It's kind of awkward sometimes. Sometimes we'll meet with someone and they'll say, hey, I, I got this idea for something the church should do. Dun, 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 dun. And we're like, that's a great idea. How are you going to do it? Um, no, I mean, how are you going to do it? <laughs> I'm like, no, how are you going to And then it just turns into a Pee Wee Herman situation. And so we, sometimes people have a problem with that. And I think it's because sometimes we turn the church into this product when really the church is the body of believers. It's us as a group. And so we need to be better at this as leaders. So my goal and Vince's goal is we want to be constantly equipping you guys to do the work of the ministry. That's why we do these things like Dream Team, if you've ever heard of it. Is this, we do it about twice a year where we'll just meet on a Saturday and we'll have you guys come and just tell us your dreams for how we could serve and love the city with your, with your gifts. And then we sit there and we go, how can I help you do that? Who are some people I could get around you to do that? What resources do I have to help you do that? Because if Vincent and I just run around trying to do all the ministry, our church will die. Right? I'll literally die probably in about 10 years or something like that. Vince is stronger than me. He'll keep going, right? <laughs> but we need to be leaders that equip you guys for the work of the ministry. And so that's a huge value of our church, that we want to equip you for that. So this fifth characteristic of the church, it heavily affects, or it, it kind of just flows out of this fourth idea, I mean. And this fourth idea is that everyone in the church is called to share the ministry. We are all called here to share in the work of what God is doing. We're all called to do it. If you are a Christian and you've professed that Jesus has saved you, you are called to ministry. That does not mean vocational ministry necessarily where you're up on stage. It means that God has you in your place to do ministry in your workplace, in your schools, and wherever else, in your neighborhoods, anywhere. That is where your ministry is. You can send out ministry letters for support if you want. Uh, take that up with God. And we, we, part of the mission of our church is we want to disciple the church to reach the unchurched. And the reason we say that is because we think the church is the body of believers, and we think that all of us in here should be discipling the church in some way. All of us in here are called to disciple the church, to fulfill God's mission, which is to reach the unchurched, to redeem the world. And so we are all hands-on-deck church. We say that a lot, but we mean it. And it's not just because we don't necessarily have all the resources to provide all the things we want. We intentionally do things certain ways because we want you guys, the saints, to share in the ministry with us. And what's cool about this story is Stephen and Philip are two guys that are chosen to serve the widows. And if you want to belittle that job and say, hey, that's not as good as preaching or whatever, the next two stories have Stephen preaching the longest sermon in, in the Bible, pretty much. And they have Philip teleporting and evangelizing. It's exciting. I get to preach on a few weeks. I'm excited. Sorry. And so these, all of us are called for the work of the ministry. And it looks all kinds of different ways. And we need to share the ministry. I want to read this from Ephesians as well. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8. If you have your Bibles. It will be on the screen too, though. 
It says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saved you by grace through faith. That grace is that idea that he saves you by no work of your own. Only the work of his son does he save you by. And out of that, we are his workmanship to do good works. You in here, God has good works specifically for you. Well, what are those? Just be like Jesus everywhere you are, for starters. And then you'll hear from the Spirit into more specific things. Do good works because God has provided them. God has made you. He's made specific good works that only you can do because that's how he's made things. And listen, this can, all these five characteristics, we can go, hey, I want to be like the early church because that's really cool and that's really neat. But I only want you to be like the early church in that they were like Jesus. Okay, they were all, the, uh, Jesus was all these things for us. Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin so that God could speak to us and that we might not quench the Spirit. Christ was not individualistic. One time teaching, he says, I came not to be served, but to serve. The God of the universe, think about that. The God who is bigger than everything. The God that knows everything. The God that in one sense is everywhere all at once. The God that exists outside of time, confined himself to a baby, grows up, and then he says, I came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus was the greatest picture of not being an individualistic person. Christ shows us that he's bigger than sin. Christ himself equipped 12 men to go and equip others and share in the ministry. So today, I want us to be like the early church, but only in that we are like Jesus. And I think this is what happens when we do that. Verse 7 of Acts 6 it says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of, di- of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So they, we saw the characteristic of the early church, and they had a lot of character because they were just like Jesus. And the word increased, and people were saved. And what's amazing to me is the priests are starting to get saved. If you remember, the priests were the guys that were like, essentially orchestrated Jesus' death on the cross. They essentially were saying, they were the ones that would say, hey, actually, it is our works that save us. Not so much Jesus. It is what we do and follow this well, what saves us. These hyper-religious people were being saved because the character of the church spoke true and the word kept increasing because they were speaking it and living it out. I want us to be a church like that. I want to be a person in the church like that. I hope we can be that church. Amen? Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for these pictures of the early church that I just find incredible. That they show us not just what the early church looked like, but what it looks like to try and live day in, day out like you do. God, help us to be more like you. Help us to look more like you.
God, sometimes I feel overwhelmed hearing lists and things and how we can be more like you, but God, that's why you gave us your spirit. And so God, I just ask that your spirit right now would empower us. I want us to be people that go out into our city and live this way. God, we love you and we need you. Help us to embody you because I think when we begin to embody you, that's when we're really going to see the word increase. That's really when we're going to see lives, lives change because of your empowering spirit living through us. God, we love you and we thank you. We pray all of this in your mighty and holy name, Jesus. Amen.